Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of October 21st through the 23rd, 2022. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Can you feel it, dear listener? That's the sound of the hierarchy of power of the DC Universe changing. Though, despite what Dwayne The Rock Johnson thinks, it's not because of his new Black Adam movie, uh, and but rather it's because of what our top headline is this week. It's been a while since we've done a headline ahead of the numbers, but I think this one is quite the important news to, to worth putting at the start of the show. So after a lot of bad press coming out of Warner Brothers' discovery these last few months with the merger and with DC specifically lacking critical box office reception since the Snyderverse and cutting Batgirl and all these other shows, uh, you know, they, there's, there's been a, a lot that DC could have used to win lately. So, you know, David Zaslav has been indicating he's been looking for a Kevin Feige-type individual to lead the DC, you know, to have that vision uh, for it long term, which, you know, makes sense given... Uh, the narrative vision for the DC is uh, EU is kind of uh, how should I put it sit at this point. Uh, when the person with the strongest vision for your cinematic universe is Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and his his vision is basically uh, I should be able to go fight Superman because I want to, uh, you probably need some help. Uh, now DC did flirt briefly with Dan Lin to come in and, and lead the universe, but it seems that things fell through given his current producing deal with Universal. Well, with Walter Hamada leaving as head of DC last week, which you know was going to be uh, an end of episode headline until this news came out, you know I sort of suspected they actually had someone on deck lined up. Um, yesterday, it was announced that James Gunn would be the co-lead of the DC universe alongside a successful Warner Brothers and DC producer Pete Safran, uh, with their official titles being co-chairman and CEOs of DC Studios, overseeing TV animation and film uh, starting November 1st with their initial contracts being for four years. Um, so personally, I think this is like a good step for DC. Um, you know, uh, Saffron and Gunn, you know, uh, Gunn probably wouldn't have been the more uh, high profile directors of late with the DCEU. Um, and then, uh, you know, both of them had been consulting with uh, um, Zaslav to, to find the new, the new, the new leads, so I guess it ended up being, hey, why don't you guys just do it? So let's talk about these two individuals, right? And what they bring to the table. First off, we have James Gunn. Uh, obviously, he's probably the name more people are familiar with um, as the visionary of the cosmic side of the MCU, starting with Guardians of the Galaxy, which is having its third iteration next year, but also, of course, having a background as a f- horror filmmaker, writing the remake of Dawn of the Dead, uh, directing his film Slither, and, of course, uh, having the live-action Scooby-Doo movies at Warner Brothers earlier on in his career. Um, after having been briefly fired by Disney for some old provocative uh, humor uh, uh, tweets uh, dug out by some anti-fans, uh, he went over to DC where he made the critically successful, if financially uh, not so successful, uh, The Suicide Squad sequel. Um, he also went on to work on the HBO Max exclusive TV show Peacemaker starring John Cena, uh, spinning off from The Suicide Squad. So, um, you know, obviously he then, after after that, got rehired by Disney and, and is working on that Guardian of the Galaxy um, film. But, um, you know, his deal as head of DC will involve an exclusivity clause, which means he will no longer be able to direct television series or movies for anyone not Warner Brothers or DC. So these upcoming outings with the Guardians, including the holiday special, whose trailer just dropped uh, this week, um, will probably be his last foray uh, partnering with Kevin Feige for a while. Now, Pete Safran, on the other hand, may be a little bit less well-known, but he certainly has had his own set of successes with comic book movies as a producer. Uh, His production company, The Safran Company, um, has a first-look deal with Warner Brothers and has produced numerous horror films in addition to uh, comic book films. Um, Think The Conjuring, Annabelle the Nun, um, as well as two of the more successful DC films, Aquaman and Shazam. 
Uh, he was also a producer on The Suicide Squad and Peacemaker So, um, as well as James Gunn's Belko Experiment, so they have a long working relationship. Um, the word is that while he was Ida's potential candidate, um, you know, uh, at, um, for, for the new head, he didn't want to do it by himself, and he wanted somebody with a creative face to it. So um, that's what Gunn is ending up providing, uh, kind of like how Pixar, the Pixar model with Jim Morris as president and Pete Docter as the chief creative officer is working out over there. So overall, this step, again, I think is a good move for the DC, as they both represent, I think, what the DC universe really needs. Uh, Saffron brings a savvy business sense, uh, honed by CEOs as a horror producer, uh, on how to get the most bang for your buck, uh, leading to Conjuring being the highest-grossing horror franchise of all time uh, with a $2 billion total so far. And then Gunn has proven he knows how to take, you know, choose from a, a huge roster of characters, which if there's one thing DC has, it's a huge roster of available characters, many of them often not really that well-known, and then turning them into household names that people can care about. Um, you know, which he obviously did with, with a talking tree and a, a walking tree and a talking raccoon. Uh, overall, I'm excited for this, even if I am a little bit bittersweet about it, as this definitely closes the door on Guardians, which is my favorite MCU sub-franchise, at least for the time being. At the very least, I can hold out hope that maybe they can get the Mystery Incorporated gang back together for a live-action film. I mean, don't they canonically meet up with the Justice League at some point? Uh, and hey, if Dwayne Johnson wants to fight Superman, uh, what about what more? Maybe he can use his connections with Kevin Feige to get somehow miraculously Greenlight an Avengers versus Justice League fight. But anyway, let's look at the box office numbers, shall we? Uh, speaking appropriate enough, speaking we have a DC film up first, which is Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam, uh, opening at number one with sixty-seven million for the weekend in four thousand four hundred and two theaters. Uh, this one comes in at a per theater average of fifteen thousand two hundred twenty-one dollars. Overseas made another seventy-five million dollars or so for one hundred forty-two million worldwide, off of a budget of two hundred million. Now that did do better than forecasts had expected, beating the sixty-three million dollar estimate. Uh, in terms of where it ranks in terms of DC films, it is the seventh best opening out of eleven, ahead of Shazam though at $53 million, but however, on the plus side, this is the highest grossing opener from DC since Aquaman back in 2018, which barely beat it out by about $800,000. So it's a bit of a shift in the right direction, at least uh, gross revenue-wise. We'll talk about profit in a little bit. Uh, critically on Rotten Tomatoes, while critics hated it at 39% and a 41% on Metacritic, uh, audiences seem to like it with a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes and a B-plus cinema score. Uh, the same cinema score with other DCEU films since Shazam, which got an A, uh, um, Birds of Prey, Wonder Woman 84, and Suicide Squad all got B+, though the Batman, which is separate from the DCEU, got an A-. minus. Uh, for Dwayne Johnson himself, uh, this is his fourth best opening of all time. Uh, the first three are Fast and the Furious films of, you know, Fate of the Furious, 98 million, Fast and the Furious uh, 7 uh, at, at 86, and then Fast 5 at 67 million or so. So his best sol so this is definitely his best solo star perform performance. So obviously he can brag about taking up the DCEU and, and accidentally slash after accidentally not so accidentally leaking that uh, Dave, Henry Cavill is back as Superman, uh, which Cavill has since officially confirmed he's back for future movies. The question is, where does this success mean profitability-wise? Well, the biggest concern I have is this film's budget, right? Uh, Black Adam has a, it has a relatively lower opening compared to its budget of $200 million. Um, its opening weekend is about 33% of that. Um, compare that to the other quote-unquote successful films from the DCEU. Wonder Woman, Shazam all made 60-plus percent of their budget opening weekend. Um, and yes, sir, Aquaman had a lower opening at 42%, but it also had the long holiday legs um, and, and also cost $40 million less. Um, 
Um, and then Batman vs Superman had a sixty percent range in its opening weekend, um, but it also cost sixty percent ex- million extra. Opened during peak summer season and had you know even worse results, which led to you know dropping like a stone. So um, numbers aren't ev- these numbers aren't everything, but these aren't the best indicator for where this film's going to end up. Um, the only two films that had a worse share of their production budget on opening weekend were the two films that opened during the pandemic, uh, Wonder Woman eighty four and Suicide Squad. Um, and I guess technically Justice League, though that was always going to have be the case since had a $3 million budget. Now, looking at past DC films, the recent DC films with Peg Hitton's number, you know, if it, if it performs the same way, maybe in the $150 million range, which uh, domestically would be a flop, I think. Um, now, if it pops off, like, say, Shazam, right, more like $268 million worldwide or $365 million worldwide, still not still not the best, um, unfortunately, or domestically, um, still not the best, right? Um, so let's look at another Dwayne Johnson film, Hobbs and Saw, right? This is like a, a, a similar to, to Black Adam. It's a spinoff of an existing film, um, Fast and the Furious or, or Shazam, respectively. That opened to $60 million in total at 2019, so about the same. Like that to $173 million. But, um, you know, the, I think the thing is that where this film really made it made its money was in China. So this is about two hundred million or so out of five hundred eighty six million uh, worldwide uh, globally for a massive seven sixty worldwide on a budget of two hundred million. That would certainly be uh, that would certainly be good for what for what this uh, what this could do. Uh, there are rumors that China will open in November, so we'll see how much this makes over there. I think just looking at multipliers for Hobbs and Saw, you know, that did well in China, and another Dwayne Johnson film did well in China, Skyscraper, uh, 2.90 and 2.75x respectively. Black Adam would be looking at maybe 190 million domestically if it holds the same. Uh, both films did about 33% of the budget domestically, apps in China. So, you know, the, the floor on, on Black Adam, I think, is probably 570 million plus whatever money China throws in. Now on a budget of two hundred million, that probably needs five hundred million to break even. So that's probably good enough uh, for uh, a budget. That's probably good enough uh, even without China uh, to to break e- to break even, right? Now we say a more conservative two point six x multiplier, um, given some various factors. Um, again, the minimum multiplier, um, you know, it, it might be able to be okay. Um, probably the minimum multiplier that Black Adam needs to be to by the end of its run be a two point four eight domestically to break even, absent whatever China gives it. Um, now, ignoring the holiday and pandemic films, as with um, as well as Wonder Woman, which is extra good, and Superman versus Batman was extra bad. Um, you know, the DCEU average multiplier is about two point five x. So that's a long way of saying. Unless something catastrophic happens in China, Black Adam will probably break even, maybe not profit, but at least break even. It's probably good enough for The Rock to get a sequel, uh, and there's going to be no mass scrambling day one for James Gunn and Pete Saffron in the first day in, in, in the new office. Uh, basically, I think it's not going to be a disaster, but it's not going to be amazing. Think of it like Thor 11 Thunder from the, from the MCU. Um, you know, it's not... That wasn't an amazing box office performance. People expected more, but it also wasn't a failure by any means. Now, the real elephant of the room, though, will be uh, whether or not Black Panther 2, coming out in, in less than a month, um, will end up uh, cannibalizing uh, screens from Black Adam uh, with better reviews. Uh, other fun tidbits about uh, Black Adam. This one puts uh, Warner Brothers finally into the 800 million mark for the year, 831 million year to date, jumping out of last pace place among the studios uh, ahead of Sony at 807 million dollars. According to Post Track, 44% of audience who saw this film uh, was because it was a, a rock film, 39% because it was a superhero film, and 32% because it was part of the DCEU. So in a sense, The Rock was right, and he is more powerful than the DCEU or of even superhero films themselves. 
Uh, anyway, let's go to our second place film for this week, which is Ticket to Paradise, the rom-com between uh, George Clooney and Julia Roberts, uh, opening to 16.5 million domestic in 3,543 3, theaters. This one gives it a per theater average of $4,660. This beats box office post forecast of about $12 million or so for the opening weekend. Uh, looking at international numbers, since it's been out for about a month overseas, it's racked up $82.3 million. Uh, in fact, in a couple of days since this past weekend, it has officially hit $100 million worldwide. Its production budget is about $60 million or so, so if it can get to a 2.3x multiplier, it'll have hit 2x its budget without making a penny more overseas. Uh, Rom-com Marry Me from earlier this year had a 2.82x multiplier. Last Christmas from 2019, starring Henry Golding and Emily Clark, hit 3.07x, uh, which would get to $130 million worldwide without additional overseas money. So I think this could probably get to 140 to 150 minimum. Hagar does a really good, as good as The Lost City from earlier this year, uh, which opened to $30 million and laid it out to $100 million with a 3.46 multiplier. This can get to $60 million domestically, good for maybe $160 to $175 million worldwide. Uh, critically, this got an A-, minus, which is better than both Marry Me and The Lost City, so who knows? Maybe rom-coms aren't dead after all, um, despite what people were saying in defense of Rose's uh, financial uh, failures. Um, the audience for this one was 45% over the age of 45 years old and has shown in the past to be Caucasian female skewing. So perhaps this was a good counter-programming to Black Adam, which was, has generally a more diverse, younger, and male audience. A third place this weekend goes to Smile, uh, hanging in there week four with a 33% drop in 3,296 theaters for $8.4 running total of $84.4 million to date domestically, uh, and like $167 million worldwide, crossing into the 10th place, uh, 10, uh, 10x its budget range, and could easily get to 11x if it hits $100 million domestically. Uh, fourth place went to Halloween Ends, last week's number one film. Uh, so yeah, while Smile had historically great second weekends for its uh, for films in general, 18%, um, not to mention amazing for a horror film, uh, Halloween Ends had its own second weekend drop record, though on the wrong side of that equation. It is officially the the, wor the second worst uh, second weekend drop for a film that opened to number one, a massive 80% drop. That's bad even for horror films. It's even worse than most anime films, right? Um, this was only bested by Friday the 13th, itself an 80.4% drop. Now, this 80% drop represented 8 million in 3,901 theaters uh, for 2,051 per theater average and a running total of 54.2 million domestic, 82.9 million worldwide. So, I mean, sir, budget-wise, it's profitable. I think it's like $20 million tops, but a lot is working again just to make a lot more. Um, in addition to poor reviews, uh, compared certainly to the acclaimed Smile, uh, Halloween is next weekend. So, you'd think a film about Halloween would be good on Halloween, but historically seen A, Halloween is a very bad weekend for films as people tend to go out trick or treating or partying instead of actually seeing movies. And then B, Halloween films tend to drop off after October 31st. Spooky season's over, we're on to all turkeys and Thanksgiving. Um, Halloween Kills, for example, last year made only an additional 8% of its gross after a Halloween, uh, after the Halloween October 31st date. So to top it all off, also it has to compete with being available on streaming after its day and date release, Peacock release. So, you know, what's more, the daily numbers aren't that great. Um, you know, user gap happy 7709 on Reddit put together numbers showing that while it may be the second worst weekend drop of all time for a number one film, it actually has an even worse 10 days, num like the first 10 days of its run, total number than Friday the 13th, the number one film, about 54 to $55 million. So it may worse end up worse than even $65 million by the end of its run domestically. Again, profitable, but, you know, could have done so much more. 
Uh, finally, in fifth place, uh, we have uh, Lylal Crocodile slinking into the sewers with a 42% a week drop, 4.2 million this weekend in 3,536 theaters uh, for 1,202 per theater average and a 28.7 million total to date. Uh, domestically, $35 million worldwide. Outside the top five, a number of dropped films uh, to make way for Black Adams uh, theaters. Uh, Barbarian dropped 1,020 theaters week seven. Amsterdam minus 1,255 theaters week three. Don't Worry Darling minus 1,306 theaters week five. And the biggest drop of all, Bros, uh, dropping 1,569 theaters in week four. Uh, on the flip side, Ter Terrifier 2 continues as the little horror film that could, gaining 55 theaters to go to 755 with a 1.7 million this weekend, a 70% gain against only a 7% gain in theaters, and the per theater average of 2,326 and a running total at $5 million. At only a quarter of a million dollars uh, budget-wise, this is way super profitable. Uh, over on the limited side of things, Triangle of Sadness pushed out to another 250 theaters, 280 total, 1.4 million to date. Added uh, Tar added 105 theaters up to 140 for 3,546 per theater average, crossing to the 1.2 million mark. Uh, Till went to 100 theaters, doubled its total of 650 million dollars. Uh, this is in the leave. Um, added uh, 45 theaters to just under 50, 6,176 per theater average, about 300,000 this weekend. And then also a moment of silence uh, for Top Gun Maverick, which is down to under 200 theaters uh, to just under seven uh, uh, to just under 700 total and outside the top 10 for the first time it's pre-release uh, perhaps that's the true up ending of the power hierarchy at the box office this week However, the big winner in terms of uh, theater counts and, uh, and or in terms of limited releases was Banshees of Inisherin, which opened in four theaters this weekend in its debut. And what a debut! It had a per theater average of forty-six thousand one hundred forty-four dollars, which is the second best of the year behind Everything Everywhere All at Once, is fifty million dollars, and ahead of Tar's thirty-nine million dollars. It's a bit less than Martin McDonough's uh, previous per theater average of eighty point five million, with three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. But I think this definitely shows the strength of this film in this year's Oscar race, and then in film Afterson from A24 had a respectable debut, about 16.5 million, not top awards, not top award status, uh, but solid for an indie film. And then the, fi the first uh, 50 million plus opening since Thor Love and Thunder, uh, with, with the first 50 million opening since Thor Love and Thunder, this week's total box office was over $100 million for the first time since Nope opened the number one with $113 millions over the summer. Uh, next week, Tar expands wide as does Till. Uh, we get the horror film, we also got the horror film Prey from The Devil from Lionsgate, forecast to four to $9 million domestic. And then opening in limited, we have Focus Features Armageddon Time and the international film Holy Spider from Utopia. Uh, looking overseas, Japan still has the best stories overseas. Uh, first, we have One Piece Red, officially crossing into the top 10 of all time in Japan. 17.36 billion yen, or about 118 million USD currently in Japan, $150 million globally. Uh, obviously, the currently weak yen isn't helping that US dollar number, but it's still a, a big accomplishment, especially since it ended up pushing out Harry Potter and the Cursed Se Chamber of Secrets, which has held on to a number 10 spot in Japan for the past 20 years, now pushed down to number 11. Um, on top of that, uh, One Piece Red itself was pushed out of the number one spot in its 11th weekend, uh, in its 12th weekend after 11 weeks on top, losing out to the new Sword Art Online progressive movie, Shorzo and Deep Knight, opening to about 2.4 million or 343 million yen. Also in Japan, uh, RRR managed to open in the top 10 and 10th place, and Top Gun Maverick dropped outside the top 10 for the first time in 21 weekends, or 22 weekends rather. 
headline-wise, aside from the DC news, just a couple of things. Uh, speaking of DC, all things balanced. Uh, while we did get the John, John Safran news, Gun Safran news, uh, we also got news that Warner Brothers is planning on having even more write-offs in the coming weeks, to the tune of uh, $2.5 billion. Uh, we also got rumors that Warner Brothers' uh, head of worldwide marketing, Sue Kroll, may be leaving for Amazon Studios. Uh, we mentioned that last week that uh, Adam Sandler is returning with the Safdie brothers for their next movie, apparently about high-end collectible cards. Well, it looks like Netflix uh, were the ones who will be funding that. Uh, hopefully, maybe it can do something with Magic the Gathering. Uh, we got news that the new Star Wars films from Damon Lindelof of Lost in Watchmen fame, the series, not the movie, is set with Mar Miss Marvel's uh, Sarmeem Obai Chinori as director. Um, though given how Lucasfilms has been with their directors lately, I'll believe it when I see it in theaters that this film is actually happening. Uh, for fans of the Silent Hill series, the original movie director Christoph Gans has been announced to come back for a new film, Return of the Silent Hill. And then looking at another new movie date, Megan, spelled M3GAN, uh, which is what my wife is calling Chucky 2.0, has been moved up one week from January 13th to January 6th of next year. Oh yeah, and there's also uh, more complications in that uh, Regal Cinema's uh, bankruptcy case. Um, one of their partner uh, found uh, an organization they helped found, National Cinemedia, um, is suing them for quote hiding behind Chapter 11 to cancel long-standing and legally binding contracts. So again, part of that whole uh, bankruptcy saga with Regal Cinemas. We'll see how this plays out. Now to wrap things up this show, let's do a segment I haven't done in a while. What I've been watching this weekend. Uh, this weekend, my wife and I took a trip down to the theaters to see Park Chan-wook's newest film, This Isn't the Leave. Um, see, my wife had recently seen Handmaiden. I'd seen it myself a couple of years ago uh, in the Lincoln Center. Um, so, you know, we were kind of excited for this. And, you know, I, th I think starting with the positives, I think Park Chan-wook has an amazing eye here, right? Some of the shots that he has going on here uh, and some of the cut edits between different scenes was just masterful. I could honestly, like, it, it's it's a masterwork in that regard. Um, you know, it, it, and, and for a film that, you know, like, it, it, there's this one scene, it's like, you know, it's, it's basically a, a police procedural about, you know, investigating a murder and then the, the, the detective falls in love with his, uh, with his suspect, the, the wife. Um, and there's a scene when they're interrogating in the room, and honestly, I was just so distracted—not even distracted, but just like amazed—by you know they were filming the shot where the camera, presumably the audience, was looking at a one-way mirror, right, in the interrogation rooms where they see them reflected back, but you don't see the camera in shot. And obviously, I know it's like CG or whatever, but it just felt you know wow, that's like a shot you couldn't, you wouldn't really expect to see um, before. Now, no, I think that's the biggest uh, positive I have for it. I think the. I think my critiques maybe outnumbered a little bit more. Maybe this is unfair just because compared to his other works. Um, one, I thought the screenplay was a little bit loose, um, so to speak, in terms in the way that um, you know, Handmaiden or even Old Boy, their scripts are just so tight and everything kind of, and it's a close. Those feel like closed systems where there's like this 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 ecosystem of thing ha things happening, and then everything that happens around it is like just so contained, and everything impacts everything else. Here it's a little bit more loose, right? There's some loose ends. Like you know, there's a there's like a 13 month time skip at some point where the detective moves locations from one jurisdiction to another, and you know we kind of never see what happens to his uh his partner at his old location, right? He gets a new partner kind of out of nowhere. And, you know, the film again another credit is is actually there's some wickedly funny parts in it, especially this one part with with like soft sill turtles or whatever. But um, yeah, I think that like, that screenplay is a little bit lacking. I think also the premise right of him falling in love with the uh, with the um, with the with the suspect, like he didn't really give a good reason why he fell in love with her. I mean, like I the presume the presumption is oh he's spending so much time paying attention to her, but like what about her made it that he was um, 
he would fall in love with her, right? Like, does he do anything out of the ordinary that, that would incur this, aside from just being pretty, which felt a little hollow to me, right? Um, and, yeah, uh, and, and and so I think that was, like, a one weakness of, of the script in, in general. I think, you know, the fact that, you know, so it's, it's played by Tang Wei, who's, like, a Chinese actress who could obviously, obviously speak Korean, um, and that's crucial because here, like, part of it is that she... Speak, she speaks. She, she feels limited by her her words because he in the in character doesn't know that much Korean, um, and so sometimes he uses like a translator app, right? And I think that's a really interesting use of like oh, showing like how we use technology to communicate, but you know. I think that to an English-speaking audience who's relying on subtitles, um, just like the, I, I imagine there's something in the script about the way she speaks being not quite as fully, I guess, like mature for a Korean speaker. Um, it's something like I got a little bit lost in translation, right? As a as a form of characterization, um, and then yeah, and I think like what is the so what is this this movie trying to say so to speak right um like for example handmaiden masterclass it's talking it's an allegory talking about right like women's place in society how people view women a meta commentary on kind of like you know uh, voyeurishness or whatever um this one i mean you know my wife kind of gave me her take on the at the end of the film just like yeah i mean this is about like a guy who you know basically falls in love and 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 how you know him keeping it to himself him kind of like harboring these feelings he shouldn't have and this and how this desire and lust or whatever basically leads to everything around him exploding how that can lead to that which okay I guess that's like a lesson you can take away from it but it doesn't feel all that profound to me anyway so I don't know I, I can't say it's like a bad film on a technical level. I think maybe on a screenplay, it wasn't to my taste per se. So in the end, I gave like a four out of five, right? I mean, Park Chan-wook still is an amazing director. This is still clearly, you know, front runner for uh, international film uh, for the Oscars this year out of Korea. Um, but I think it may be not as, as much of a runway hit I would have expected. So... Um, with that, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Uh, you can shoot me ideas, ideas for what else I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchpodcast. Our shows on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review. At the very least, tell a friend that any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon, which lets me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Links to all that will be in our show notes. Our numbers used in the show come from thenumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod and a competent at filmmakers.io. Editing production by Ninja Boy Media. Until next time, this been the box office watch podcast and remember our watch goes on Music